0: Hi, I'm Dave from Los Angeles. The Sound of Young America is an independent production supported by listeners like you and me. If you'd like to donate to support the show, visit, visit MaximumFun.org and click on Donate. Oh man, that was my one chance. Live on tape from my house in Los Angeles, I'm Jesse Thorne, and this is The Sound of Young America from MaximumFun.org. Radio, It's The Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is 27-year-old Mariana Palka, the writer, director, and star of the award-winning independent film Good Dick. It's a curious kind of romantic comedy. In it, Palka plays a porn-obsessed woman who only leaves her apartment to go to the video store. There, she meets a recovering addict played by Jason Ritter. I thought this looked like it had amazing potential, too, but it is actually really bad two definitely underage girls greasy fat guys like basically do you want to pick out something else dude
1: you can't talk to the porn customers are you in love
0: it's no use wasting away alone find someone did you want to get some breakfast Weird that that girl
1: stopped coming in. Yeah, it's been ever since a lover boy here scared her away. Hey, uh, maybe we could, uh, just get a coffee or something? If I wanted to have sex, I would go find someone sexy. Not like you. You're disgusting to me.
0: Mariana, welcome to the Sound of Young America. It's good to have you.
1: Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here.
0: I, I I think people are going to be um thrown by your accent. It's a very distinctive accent. The accent of someone who uh, has lived for 10 years in Los Angeles and the first 17 years of their life in Glasgow, Scotland.
1: Yeah. Working class Glasgow accent. Yep. <laughs>
0: um the a lot of the, there's I every, I feel like every interview Um, I've read with you so far has been obsessed with the idea that you didn't watch television as a child. Your parents didn't want you to watch television as a child. What's interesting about uh, about it to me is less that you didn't watch television and more that from your responses to those questions, it it seems like your parents almost curated for you, your uh, AV inputs. (laughs) What did your parents have you watch as a kid?
1: well mostly polish cinema and well european cinema so i would i was allowed to watch you know like foreign films it was really movies that they had in their collection they had about 600 vhs tapes of films that they liked and i was allowed to watch them um and i was you know i was allowed to watch anything that was in the house basically um and they also had they had bizarre music videos. They had um a VHS copy of the Mahabharata um <laughs> which I watched. They had um they had such what random things. And then there was one you know, there was like one Eddie Murphy film coming to America and then there was a couple of Marilyn Monroe <laughs> movies and stuff that was actually in English that was cool for me to watch. Um but I would go to my neighbor's house and I would watch TV and I really enjoyed doing that. I would go at, like every day at like 4 o'clock I would go watch this soap called Home and Away <laughs> I'd say, like every day after school
0: That's all. I think that's always the, uh, the exact behavior pattern of the kid whose parents don't let them watch TV <laughs> yeah they a, just
1: go to their friend's house and watch it
0: as someone who grew up in San Francisco <laughs> the home of parents who don't let their children watch TV that yeah. seems like it's pretty much the, um, did you actually, did you actually watch the stuff that was in your parents' house
1: though? Mm-hmm. My sister was three years older than me, so she would watch a lot of it and I would watch whatever she was watching. So we did, we watched a number of films. We had a lot of favorites that we would put kind of on a loop, you know, we would watch them and then watch them again. Um, sometimes it would spend the weekend. Well, mostly Kozlowski movies and Andrei Vita's films.
0: Sure. I mean, what teenager hasn't? (laughs) Did you have a feeling at at the time that that was unusual?
1: I had a feeling that I was definitely unusual living in Scotland. My whole family was Polish. So I I always felt different than everyone around me because I was. I mean, I would go to Polish school on the weekends um, for a couple hours each day. And, you know, I when I went to school, my English wasn't very good in Scotland, so um, I had to learn English really kind of quickly. And my mum was really different. She was very uh, enthusiastic and very open and artistic and just not really like other people's mothers. And my dad was really different. You know, I, I knew that I was different. And, you know, I would also spend my time doing really weird things like being in my own world or going into the forest behind our house. I would go to the castle next door as well, which was fun.
0: Did you say castle? Now you, this yes. is Scotland, so when you say castle, you literally mean castle.
1: Yeah, I mean an actual castle. But it was a broken down castle that had been a- abandoned. I'm not quite sure why it was abandoned, but it had been empty for years and years and years. So there were bed sheets that had been ripped off the bed, but were just... um still there and there was still furniture in the house, but there were birds like nesting in the, um, in the couches and stuff like that. It was a very bizarre place to go visit, but that's where I would run around by myself a lot and come up with ideas.
0: When you were watching all these movies as a kid, Truffaut, uh, coming to America, what, <laughs> what um, when did you start watching them with an eye for the idea that you might eventually make them?
1: Well, I remember asking my mom when I said to her, when did life turn into color? (laughs) And my mom said, well, life was never, life was always in color. And I was like, well, why was it in black and white in the olden days? (laughs) She was like, no, 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 that's just the camera. And she explained it to me. Um, But that was my level of like, I just, I really felt like the people who were coming into my living room that I was watching on the screen in these films were there for me, um, which I'm sure just, that's just, um, the way that little kids think, you know? And I remember, you know, being confused and asking my mom, like, how does it work? Like, does Eddie Murphy like get small and then he gets big again? And how does he get small? And, you know, I had to, like, I needed to understand it. So I think that it was always a part of my experience. You know, I always wanted to make-believe and I thought it was really funny to to pretend to be someone else and I was really good at accents so I would just I was very extrovert and would just play all these different roles for my sister and my sister would always laugh and I was always kind of like the clown of the whole family um especially when there was a big group of people I would like to I tended to like get on the table and jump around a lot (laughs) um a little bit like a hyperactive dog if you like so I always felt like I wanted to do it. And when some people from uh, Poland came over, a theatre group came over to stay with us, and they were very, the actors were very articulate, and they were very, they sat up straight, and they were tanned, and they knew what they were talking about, and they did these incredible plays, these incredible theatre pieces that were so powerful that I remember being um, shaken by as a kid. And that's really when I knew what I wanted to do. When I saw great theatre, I knew that, I was sort of destined to do that because that's what I would do. That's just what I would do morning till night. <laughs> you know?
0: So what brought you to the United States at the age of 17? That's a pretty bold step.
1: Yeah, I had moved to a working class area with my mum in Glasgow. So it was just my mom and I living in this area. And I was really not feeling like I wanted to stay in Britain. So my my de- my decision was to go to New York and to study theater there. And to uh, build a life in the theater, that was my dream. I was going to do that or I was going to go to the Maldives and teach people to scuba dive. Those were my sure. two choices. <laughs> uh-huh. Again,
0: what teenager doesn't <laughs> when considering their future?
1: Those, <laughs> yeah, that was just, I just knew that those were my two options. So I decided to go to New York and give that a shot. And if it didn't work, I was going to go to the Maldives and dive all the rest of my life.
0: You were one of the youngest filmmakers in Sundance. And by the time the film hit Sundance, you'd been working on the film for a number of years. Mm -hmm. Um, What made you think, somewhat presumptively, oh, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to make a feature film. What what led you into that?
1: Well, when I wrote the film, I was writing, I thought I was writing a short. I was an actress only before that. I'd never written anything And I th- I think I tricked myself into thinking that I was writing a short, but actually I just wrote a feature. <laughs> um, I had a feature-length script, and I was like, all right, I guess it's a feature. And uh, then I wanted someone else to direct it, but then I realized that it would be really complicated as the writer and the actress in the film to discuss all the things that I wanted with the director when I knew what I wanted. Um, it just seemed like too much conversation. And my friend Daphne Javich, my great friend, uh, my best friend, she's a costume designer in New York and an incredible woman, and um, she actually sat me down one day when we were having tea, and she said, well, just you direct it. And I was like, Daphne, like I can't direct it. Like, <laughs> like, I got really embarrassed and freaked out. And she said, look, there's no ladder. There's no... You don't have to do A, B, and C in order to get to D with this. You can just direct D for direct um (laughs) you can just do it you don't have to go to film school you don't have to be a guy or be 55 or be any of those things you know um this idea that you have to do something in order to do the next thing doesn't make any sense to her so she basically changed my life that day by telling me that and um I suppose it was kind of audacious and um bold it was a bold move but I'm never, I mean, I never regretted it. It didn't ever, it never felt like too much. It felt like it was meant to be.
0: I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Mariana Palka, writer, director, and star of the film Good Dick. Production of The Sound of Young America is supported in part by Ask MetaFilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered. Online at ask.metafilter.com. If you're a relatively new listener to The Sound of Young America and you're looking for an easy way to catch up on old shows, why not try The Sound of Young America Classics? The Sound of Young America Classics is a separate podcast feed for older Sound of Young America programs, so you'll get a new old Sound of Young America delivered to your iTunes every week, and it's just as free as the regular Sound of Young America. In iTunes, just search for Sound of Young America Classics, or if you're already looking at one of our productions in iTunes, just click on MaximumFun.org in the author area, and you'll be taken to our special iTunes room. You can also go to our blog and click on the button that says All Our Podcasts in iTunes. The Sound of Young America Classics is your easy way to get new, old Sound of Young America programs. Welcome back to The Sound of Young America from MaximumFun.org. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Marianna Palka. She's the Scottish-born, Polish-extracted, Los Angeles-dwelling writer, director, and star of the film Good Dick. Before we went on the radio, when you, when you first got here, I asked you what you thought of Los Angeles, and yeah. and when you when you heard that, you know, I'm a little bit uncomfortable in Los Angeles because I find it alienating. You told me about how much you like uh, a Los Angeles, and also how you agree with my assertion. <laughs> That, it, that it's somewhat alienating. The film, uh, Good Dick, is about two very alienated characters. Mm-hmm. First of all, what's the appeal of that to you? Um, and second of all, like, what were the themes that came out first? What were the themes that were driving it when you were writing it?
1: Well, I think that that alienation of Los Angeles kind of speaks to a need that is in all of us to feel like we belong somewhere or like we belong with someone. And I think... You know, the the spark, the initial spark for the film came from this idea that this, there's a place called Cinephile Video on S- Sawtelle and Santa Monica, and the guys in there are kind of like keepers of the kingdom. <laughs> they have all these incredible, incredible films, and they are kind of like librarians, and they know a lot, they have a lot of information about these amazing filmmakers, Um so if you just want to go in there one day, it's like a museum. And it, when you talk to them, they're like really incredible to talk to. So I, I actually came up with the idea of the film standing in there, looking at one of the director's sections. I can't remember which one, but I came up with the idea of a woman who is so lonely who comes in every day to the video store, who rents erotica. I just thought it would be funny because they have this whole section of like really bizarre, weird. Um, you know, soft porn and they have porn too but mainly it's soft porn and I thought it would be funny because, you know, they don't really tend to have a discussion with people if they're renting <laughs> from this cer- this certain section. You know, they just don't go into, they don't get into a conversation. It's just like a very graceful exchange of si- like silent understanding of like, we're not going to talk about this movie because... I don't know what to tell you about it. Like, I would, I could, I would be able to talk to you about it. <laughs> me, but I can't talk to you about this. Um, so that was where the idea came from. And then I had to sort of build the characters around that dynamic. Um, so that's basically the opening scene of the movie, and the rest of the film came out of that.
0: I read you describing it in one interview as imagining what would rock these guys' world.
1: Heck yeah, heck yeah that's funny. (laughs) It's It's just,
0: it's this really specific type of group of guys that I, I found that you captured really fantastically well. How did you capture that? What did you think about in your own life in order to relate to this very, I think in some ways, very specifically male kind of group?
1: Yeah. Well, I spent three years here in LA before writing the script. And the time that I spent here was basically you know um, I spent my time driving around and hanging out with friends and what tends to happen is when, you're, when you've when you done something like you've seen a play or you've been to dinner then after you're done all, of the fr- all your friends kind of stand on the street I don't know if it's true for your friends but my friends kind of stand on the street and talk to one another because they don't want to get in their cars and go home just yet, it's not like New York when, where you sit on the subway and you kind of debrief on the way home here you just kind of stand about on the street. So I did a lot of that in those three years and I spent a lot of time listening to these guys in L.A. who make each other laugh and listen to the way that they talked and the, and their humour. And um, I think that I kind of downloaded it and applied it to the film because I, I just, you know... I was very aware of of how they're kind of different than other people in other parts of the country. There's
0: this really wonderful scene that happens almost in the background of a scene between the two protagonists where one of the video star- clerks, who's played by um, Martin Starr, who folks might know from uh, Freaks and Geeks, his really amazing work on Freaks and Geeks, and is similarly great in this film, is talking about how he knows that the deadliest snake is a black <laughs> mamba, but he's, he seems to be incredibly upset with himself for not being sure what the second deadliest yeah. snake is.
1: That line, actually, I have to give, um, I have to say that line was completely improvised by Mr. Martin Starr. <laughs> he's incredible and um, he's a really great guy and he came up with that by himself. And I have like four or five takes of him ha- talking about the Black Mamba in a different way. And Eric um, Edelstein is talking to him. And it's just really great. I could make a whole movie of the stuff that I didn't show that the guys have. That line is improvised. And then there's a couple of other things that made it into the movie that was were improvised by the guys. But, you know, the Black Mamba line had to go in there because I just thought it was incredible.
0: You describe the uh, the opening scene of the film, which sort of provides the impetus for the story. And I, earlier on, I said it was an odd kind of romantic comedy. In a romantic comedy, there's uh, there's a scene in which the male and female leads meet in, in an in an interesting way, and then typically the film is composed of the guy doing ridic- increasingly ridiculous things in order to endear himself to the woman. Right. In a lot of ways, this film is that. I mean, there, this film has a lot in common with that formula. How is it different from that formula?
1: Well, first of all, I think that it's about real people. The characters are um, real as much as possible. I mean, we we really tried hard um, to, to make a film about real people with real problems. And I think that, you know, I... I enjoy watching films that are, you know, very basic and really shiny and really clean and have, like, one-dimensional characters and really easy, um, like, a really easy story with a really easy plot line and everything. I mean, I just, I like that. I find it entertaining. I don't think that Good Dick is that. I think it's kind of a mixture and a collage of all of the different influences that I've had. And also, I'm I'm not really concerned with... um, with illustrating like romance in any way that's false right now because I feel like there's so much going on in terms of in terms of how we're understanding or how we're portraying intimacy in the culture I think that it's it's almost um it's almost at an extreme or I hope it's almost at an extreme because it seems to me like nobody's really explaining what romance is so I wanted to make a film that explained what I see it to be in life as opposed to what it is in fantasy.
0: It's The Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is mariana Palka. She's the writer, director, and star of the feature film Good Dick, which won her the New Voices Directing Award at the Edinburgh Film Festival and was a dramatic selection for the Sundance Film Festival. Jason Ritter, who's the male lead of the film, plays... Uh, A guy who's uh, a recovering addict and is living sort of tenuously in this, you know, his, his, the firmest, his firmest foot on the, on the ground is in this video store. Um, And he's, you know, apparently living in his car and romance begins when he essentially starts to stalk your character and makes up a, a few kind of big lies in order to insinuate himself into your character's life, which quite obviously to us, the audience is no more stable and secure. It's almost scary to me. The beginning almost scared me with the level of, of weirdness and, and alienation that was going on there. Yeah. And it's almost, it's, it's distressing to me to hear it being described as real. Yeah.
1: <laughs> was that your intent? Well, in the beginning, I think there's definitely, you're not really clear about what his intentions are in the very, very beginning. Because he takes her address from the database, from the computer in the video store, and then he gets in his car and he goes to her house. And I think up until the point where he looks through her window, I think you're kind of like, what is he going to do right now? And when he looks through the window, I talked a lot to Jason about how that's the moment where he falls in love with her. And I think the definition of a stalker is, you know, someone who has malicious intentions, and I think his character never does. So that's nice, that's good for us. I think that the whole point of the film is kind of to explore these ideas. Well, when I was writing the script, I was thinking about what... I was thinking of these questions. What is intimacy? What is sexy right now in this society? in Los Angeles uh, for these two characters. What does it mean to uh, sexually heal? And how much does that have to do with touching and how much does it have to do with caring for someone? Because honestly, in the film, the film is very clean even though it's called Good Dick. There's no, they don't have sex and um, sometimes they touch one another, but it's it's not very often. And their courtship kind of begins with him giving her a gift um, and it moves into him washing her hair, which I think is a very intimate moment. It's one of the most intimate moments in the film, as it is in life. You know, if someone washing your hair is a really big deal. But we seem to kind of have forgotten about that stuff. I think that intimacy does involve touching and caring for someone. But you can't really do that if you're just um, alone with your computer watching porn you know, it seems like that's not it's I mean, it's like in order to be intimate, you need another human being. Um, and I wanted to just sort of remind us all of that.
0: In the classic r- romantic comedy, the thing that keeps the guy, you know, driving towards love is this magical love at first sight, true love. Um Thing that is sort of assumed in the film that mm-hmm. this is absolutely right, you have mm-hmm. two characters. your character in the film is kind of belligerent
1: yeah. <laughs> and
0: um, <laughs> sort of mean spirited in a generally in a funny way but uh, but nonetheless clearly mean spirited mm-hmm. um, his character is completely adrift and uh, lying a lot. Yeah. So what did you see as you were writing it and indeed as you were making it that held them together that provided the the drive forward?
1: Well, I think that they're really meant to be together and I think that their connection is almost their um their desire to get over their problems even though they might not know that. She definitely doesn't know that that's how she feels in the beginning of the movie but she has a number of issues um she has been sexually abused in her childhood and so i think you know the fact that the fact that he lies basically is a way to he's kind of white lying in a creative way in a kind of romantic way even to to get into her life and i think without those white lies he wouldn't have been able to um like penetrate her world because her door is locked and she doesn't talk to anyone and she doesn't see anyone. Um, it's it's a miracle that she gets out of bed every day, frankly. And so I think that what drew them together, these characters, was the fact that they needed each other, and I think that they knew that they could heal one another ultimately. And I think that's kind of similar to what happens in life. It could be the definition of falling in love with someone is you you realize oh this person can heal me. And in fact, what's attractive about them is their potential to do that. You know, that um, what's attractive about them is not like their bleached teeth or their blow dried hair or, you know, whatever outfit they're wearing. But it's really the way that they're looking at you.
0: In a movie that's a, been so much about intimacy, I thought it was really interesting that you chose to frame so much of it from standing well back there's i mean you got you got a a, a beautiful fella and a beautiful lady in this movie <laughs> it go in there on the face a beautiful face why did you choose to to take it from so far back from this sort of distant observer perspective
1: well i actually when i met with the cinematographer and we began shot listing i said to him that i wanted everything to be shot in the wide and that the actors were prepared to do everything in the white as if we were doing a play um because i really feel like i felt at the time like it was important to give the characters that respect of the distance and also the fact that so much of the movie is about voyeurism like he's watching her she's watching videos and we're watching them and i just felt like that was a nice um that kind of had a nice um feeling to it to be far away so we did everything in the wide, and then we did go in for close-ups just so that we had them, which is sort of standard. Um, and I found at times in the editing room that we needed to be closer to them. We needed to know what was going on in their faces, which is why it was great that we had the close-ups. But um, if it was up to me, you know, I would, I would have loved to have done the whole movie in wides, but it just doesn't work like that. It can't work like that.
0: Why was it important to you for the film to be happy, optimistic, in its own yeah. way,
1: well, for my own sake, I think I, mean, I had to work on it for three years, and if I was making something that was negative um and putting something out in the world that was negative, I just think I wouldn't have been able to do it. You know you have to have an enthusiasm for what you're doing, and I think the film is saying something really important about love and sexuality and sexual abuse and um sexual healing and all sorts of things. i mean it's really a positive movie in all of those aspects, but um yeah, I think you have to make, at least for me, I know that the films that I make have to be cathartic. Otherwise, I don't know what I'm doing. Like they have to, if if a film just starts and the situation is terrible and it continues to be terrible and then at the end of the movie, if the situation is worse or still terrible, it's almost like, what did we go to the cinema for? And it doesn't have to be fake and better, but it does have to be really better. <laughs> Well,
0: Marianna, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to be on the Sound oh, of Young thank America. thank you
1: so much for having me.
0: Marianna Palka's new movie, Good Dick, is uh, in theaters, distributed by none other than Marianna Palka.
1: And my three other producers, yeah.
0: <laughs> and her three other producers. Um, it's in theaters now. Uh, thank you so much. Good Dick is at the Sunshine Theater in New York City. It opens later this month at the ritz bors Theater in Philadelphia. You can find other screening times online at gooddickthefilm.com. That's our time for another Sound of Young America program. I've been your host, Jesse Thorne, America's radio sweetheart. The show produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our theme music written and performed by Dan Grayson with help from myself. Interstitial music provided by Dan Wally. The show is edited by Nick White. Our intern, Casey O'Brien. My dog's name is Coco. You can find us online at MaximumFun.org, and if you ever have thoughts about the show, you can email them to me at jesse at MaximumFun.org. If you want to discuss this or any of our other Sound of Young America programs or just about anything else, you can head on to our online forums at MaximumFun.org forum where thousands of people just like you are discussing all kinds of awesome stuff. They're probably somewhat different from you, to be honest with you. I just said thousands of people just like you because I thought it would make you visit my website. Anyway, we're online at MaximumFun.org. We'll see you later this week on the Sound of Young America.